0: Welcome to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN Impress. I'm here for a very special episode of AJCN Impress, where we're going to talk about how 2020 went uh, over here at AJCN. You know, it was a relatively uneventful year, (laughs) Um, but I'm fortunate today to be joined by both our editor-in-chief and our academic editor, uh, that's Chris Duggan and Deirdre Tobias, respectively. I'm going to let them introduce themselves real quick.
1: Uh, Sure. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, My name is Chris Duggan. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist and nutrition physician at Boston Children's Hospital I'm also a uh, professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and a professor in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan uh, School of Public Health. I've uh, been editor-in-chief since uh, February 2019, so in many ways, 2020 was my first full year at the helm of leading the journal, and it's, uh, it's really been a great um, a great experience. I've learned a lot. I've met a lot of great people, including uh, yourself and Dee, Dee and our other editors, which we'll talk about later. Um, so thanks for having me.
2: And I'm Dee, Dee Tobias. I'm an assistant professor at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School, um, as well as the Harvard School of Public Health and Nutrition. And I am a nutritional epidemiologist by training and by practice. Um, I work on a number of lo- large cohort studies Including the nurses and health professionals and women health study, but I also just started my own first dietary intervention trial as well. So, getting a flavor for that. Um, I teach nutrition epi to grad students. It's really exciting. A lot of methods, and uh, yeah, I mean whatever else you want to know, but that that pretty much sums it up. And then the academic editor position, I joined at the same time as Chris. So. February of 2019. And it's been a really interesting experience every step of the way.
0: Yeah. So if you guys don't like what's happening at AGCN, just blame them. (laughs) (laughs) Super happy to have you guys on the podcast. Um, I think this will be a fun conversation to just talk about how the year went. Um, So Chris, I know you have some general statistics for us over about the journal and kind of how submission rates and whatnot, whatnot went.
1: Yeah, we had a really busy year in 2020 at the journal. Um, we attributed part of that to the fact that you know perhaps uh, people were spending so much time uh, in lockdown. They were discovering old data sets in their in their desk drawers and were writing up papers. So uh, there was a little bit of a bimodal curve in terms of distributions. They seemed to fall off a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic and then picked up solidly towards the end of the year. Our final figures aren't in, but I think we're going to approach about 1,600. Uh, total submissions for the year, which is a, which is a good number. It's a, uh, higher than our past uh, several years, actually. Um, and as a result, we've continued to be a, um, a moderately difficult place to, to publish. Our acceptance rate is hovering around twenty percent. Um, so as you can see, we really um, uh, have the the um, ability to to really be selective in publishing what we think is is the best science. So it's been a, and it's been a great year to see a lot of new science. Uh, not just um, the usual stuff, but a lot about the relationship between uh, COVID infections and nutrition, et cetera.
2: Chris, I'll have to admit, I did not experience the same surge in productivity that others might <laughs> <may> have. <laughs> <Lockdown>. <laughs> um, well, Didi, I, that
1: means you just have to put a lock on that door behind you. So it
2: does door. not have one. <laughs> I think you know a chain maybe would work. I'm not sure if that even would keep the little ones out. But
1: Uh, No, but in all seriousness, there might be a drop off in in submissions and academic productivity, because we all know how difficult it has been to to do our work in in times of lockdown and times of uh, economic uh, stress. So um, it's a trend that we'll have to follow.
0: Although there are those folks like me who didn't pipette for six months and now are pipetting vigorously. So maybe, maybe we'll get <laughs> a lot it. more submissions next year. <laughs> well, one
1: of the nice things about the submissions, what we've tried to do in the journal in the last year or two has been really to broaden the types of science that we'd like to entertain and review critically and publish ultimately. Um, we we've fundamentally been a journal that's been interested in in publishing the best clinical nutrition science. But over the past year or so, we've had important uh, new sections in the journal. Uh, and I, if if now's a good time, Kevin, I'd like to review those briefly.
0: Oh yeah, no, go for it.
1: Uh, you know, so we have four new sections added to the standard sections of the journal. Uh, one is called Nutrigenomics and Personalized uh, Nutrition. Lorraine Brennan from the University of uh, College Dublin is the uh, section editor for that section, and as the name implies, we are really interested in hearing about cutting-edge science in terms of the new technologies of omics medicine and how it relates to human nutrition. Uh, Powell Christian is a section editor for a newly named section that used to be called Pregnancy and Lactation. We thought that was a little bit too limiting in terms of the importance of women's nutrition. So that's the new title of that section. Uh, And again, the idea that nutrition uh, for women does not begin and end just with pregnancy and lactation, but is an important concept to review throughout the lifespan is the main scope of that section. Our third new section is called Food Systems and the Environment. Uh, Jess Fonzo is our section editor for that section. Uh, And uh, we, uh, just this month, January 2021, uh, led that section off with a really nice review article that Jess and her uh, co-authors reviewed the, the literature and pointed to important research gaps as that might affect human nutrition. And then our, our fourth new section is called Great Debates in Nutrition. David Ludwig is the section editor for that section. And we've already had a number of important uh, discussions, uh, both at the recent ASN meeting last spring, as well as in the pages of the AJCN, uh, with a, a very nicely uh, pro and con discussion among people who have different different approaches to different scientific controversies, as well as a synthesis section where people come together and uh, identify gaps in research, as well as how to move the field forward. So those new sections have been really exciting to bring to the forefront.
0: Yeah, I was fortunate to join on as the young career editor, right, as uh, the saturated fat first inaugural Great Debate Nutrition came on and got to vigorously live tweet that at at, uh, Nutrition 2020. Looking forward to doing that again in Nutrition 2021. Excellent.
2: Unfortunately, virtual. Do you think it would have been a bloodbath had it been in person? <laughs> <laughs> Just
0: people lobbing cheese across the room at each other. <laughs> or coconut oil.
1: One of the features of our submissions that's been really exciting uh, that Didi has championed, which is the so-called hassle-free submissions uh, to make lives easier for uh, prospective authors. So, Didi, how did you make that work and how's it been?
2: Um, well, it hasn't been without hiccups, first of all. So if you're rolling your eyes at hassle-free submission because it was not hassle-free for you, I apologize, but we will get there. Um, yeah, so I, I think early on it was um, it was exciting to see all of this data about the behind-the-scenes publication process and, and feedback from recent authors. And one of the things that did stand out, which I'm sure many journals face, is is just the submission process and the formatting and uploading. And, you know, so many journals use different sites and, um, you know, I get it. I'm also a publishing author. It's it's it can be a hassle. So we decided to try this hassle-free trend, which is, you know, basically turning around at first submission your manuscript and figures and tables in whatever format they happen to be currently in so long as everything that is needed to scientifically judge the merit of the paper is there. Um, and then only, not only until uh, the next round of re- revisions, should it be sent to peer reviewers and you be invited to resubmit, only at that point would you then need to meet all the formatting requirements for the journal. So I think that it's an attractive um, feature because it removes a big barrier for a lot of, uh, of authors looking for the next home for their paper. Um, but you know, it it just also keeps the door even wider open for the best scientists, and we don't want people to be passing by AJCN just because of you know the difficulty in trying to get their their paper um, just glanced at for that first submission. So I think it's been pretty successful. The turnaround time for authors trying to submit um, seems that it's like it's been reduced, um, and the number of times mm-hmm. you have it kicked back for errors and things like that. Have been reduced, and that was the intent. So, hopefully, it only continues to improve. And, um, yeah, and you know, think of AJCN for your next submission, I guess. And, and
1: we welcome your feedback uh, on the process of submitting.
2: Yes, yeah. So, if there are other ways it can be continued to be improved, we are happy to hear that.
1: One of the things we're really proud about uh, this year is expanding our global footprint of associate editors. Uh, right now, we have associate editors not just from the United States, but from China, India, Canada, Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa. Indeed, the sun never sets on the editorial board of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition.
0: So in addition to helping authors out by having the hassle-free submission, we also had some updated instructions to the authors as well. Who wants to tackle that?
2: I mean, who doesn't love the instructions to authors? It is the go-to for... Um, any journal that you are turning a paper around to. Um, Chris, take it from there.
1: (laughs) Well, I I am proud of one important uh, addition to the instructions of authors that we heralded um, in December of 2020, which is a piece piece, um, that we wrote called Race, and racism in the nutrition literature and really was a, a reflection that, that I and several uh, uh, editors put forward as, as our way to say, um, in part in response, obviously, to the uh, events of this past summer in the United States that stimulated many of us to reflect on the role of race uh, in everyday life, let alone in an academic journal. Um, and so in the piece, we really reviewed how race is is erroneously considered uh, by many scientists as a biological variable. And essentially, we put forth the case that had been made uh, by others in many other places before that it's essentially a social variable, and that reliance on, on race uh, often has no validity in the uh, scientific literature, which is not to say that race doesn't matter race matters a lot uh but as a social variable it needs to be described with other social variables uh in terms of its relationship to nutritional science
0: it's a really great commentary i hope everybody checks it out
1: thanks Gun. i know you tweeted it widely and i appreciate that
0: and then so uh, last but not least we did want to cover that we have uh we chose our top 10 altmetric scoring papers that we kind of wanted to summarize, at least a few of, to characterize kind of a feel for what got the most action, most play in the journal. Um, and that can be both as an idea of what you might want to submit to our journal, but also use it as a guidance of what uh, kind of new topics we might want to submit to diversify the things that are really getting some uh, getting noticed at the journal. So I know uh, Chris and Dee have reviewed the top 10, I think. Yeah. Well, let's yeah, start with Swapmeat. Swapmeat was something I tweeted out and, and Dr. Gardner, the P- lead PI on the study, tweeted out and uh, got a ton of action on Twitter. I'm not surprised to see it in the top 10. So Dee, why don't you take us through just a basic overview of what the Swapmeat trial was?
2: Well, first of all, um, A-plus for the title of the trial. So the SWAT meat is actually an acronym. Um, it's Study with Appetizing Plant Food Meat-Eating Alternative Trial. And I think that's just adorable. Um, it's a randomized crossover trial. So the participants are experiencing both diets. And it is um, look to ask whether consuming a plant-based diet versus an animal-based meat diet had any differential effects on TMAO and cardiovascular disease risk factors. So TMAO is this you know, emerging biomarker metabolite of um, meat consumption that may um, imply some interaction with your microbiome and uh, its relationship with cardiovascular disease has been shown whether it's causal or not is up for debate. But um, so, yeah, it was this randomized crossover trial looking at these biomarkers relatively short term, um, again, consuming either this um, plant-based meal or a meat version of the meal.
0: And it was a plant-based meat alternative, right? That was sort of the center of the dish?
2: Yes. So it was, um, the funding was provided by Beyond Meat. So these are the products that you see at, I think they are, they do the Burger King, maybe not, I don't know. Um, Burger King um, Whopper possible oh, Burger, sorry, uh, okay. <laughs> but you can see that you can buy them at the grocery store. They look like yeah. meatballs or burgers, and it's plant-based foods. Um, and these products have surged in the market in the last probably 18 months, um, with you know attention to reducing red meat intake and eating more plant-based diet. Whether they're healthy or not, I think is still up for debate because you know you're not eating fruits and vegetables in place of reducing meat you're eating these highly processed products that yes do not contain meat but what's in them and it you know can be double digits number of ingredients because they want these products to look feel taste bleed you yeah, know everything yeah. just like a hamburger if you buy it the
1: mouthfeel is uh, impressively like meat i will say
2: yeah oh i I actually really like them full disclosure um and but I you know whether it's whether you're getting that healthfulness that you would have gotten if you'd switched to veggies or something else is I think is still, you know, what what the study maybe was trying to to assess.
0: Yeah. Especially because I think a lot of those products, you know, people are mostly concerned about cardiometabolic health and a lot of those products are high or made with coconut oil and have a lot of added sodium. So there's questions about whether they'll actually improve those biomarkers of cardiometabolic health.
2: Yeah, exactly. So you know the healthy halo for not eating meat, sure, but you know, are you replacing it with something that's just as bad or better? Or I don't know. That's that's the big hot area of debate, of course. So,
0: so in brief, what did the the study kind of find?
2: Yeah, so they found that TMA, TMAO, so that's this biomarker of meat intake, obviously was lower when you were on the plant meat meat plant based meat diet. That's not a surprise, but you know, of course, it's nice to see that compliance was good, Um, and there was uh, slightly lower cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, with the plant-based. So, you know, LDL cholesterol is the bad cholesterol associated with heart disease. We can debate that in a separate podcast if you want, but that was lower with the plant-based than the red meat. um, Great. Now, when
0: I tweet this out, it's just going to be a storm over that comment.
2: (laughs) And um, let's see. Oh, the bo- body weight was like one kilogram lower. And again, these are within-person differences. Um, Chris, you got to get that. Uh, I am.
0: Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Doctor Duggan is a hot commodity beyond just this podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing we got him on.
2: But all of these other cardiometabolic parameters that could change in a matter of eight weeks. Uh, IGF. Glucose, insulin, blood pressure, no differences. So really the big one was LDL. LDL was lower with the intake of the plant-based products. Um, But back to TMAO, um, there was an order effect. So this is important. We have a crossover design where you are randomly assigned, if it's a good crossover, and this was, randomly assigned to the order in which you receive your diet. So plant-based first, then you switch to beef. Um, Beef first, then you switch to plant. So that order is randomly assigned to you. Um, The order effect was that those who have the plant-based first might have an adaptation to their microbiome. So when participants come into the study, having likely a history of eating meat in their diet, when they are on the meat diet, their TMAO levels are what they are because they're eating meat and decrease when they remove the meat. However, those that have the plant-based diet first and experience eight weeks of basically a meat washout, then introduce meat back into their diet for their second period, there was no subsequent significant rise in TMAO. So to me, this might say, and to the authors and their conclusions, they describe this could be that those who had this basically meat washout period with the plant-based had shifts in their microbiome to where the microbiome basically forgot or there were new microbiome that took over that for one reason or another, they were no longer able to really metabolize the carnitine and meat um, as well. So if you then introduce meat, you don't see this rise in TMAO that you would expect because the microbiome's not really digesting the metabolites in the same way. So that was a hypothesis that they threw out in the discussion that I thought um, was kind of an elegant way to potentially explain this order effect. Of course, it could just be totally random. And you know, if we did the study again, we would see the opposite. Um, But so that's something I think that um, maybe could be followed up further, um, especially since this is a microbiome derived um, metabolite, but we'll see. So that was swap meat.
0: Possibly. That's
1: great. great that's great DD I mean I do the other interesting thing and we published at least two papers this year about it was the utility of that biomarker TMAO in different diets right which I didn't realize until I read these papers which is that uh, fish intake is uh, can be a driver of TMAO as well so people should not uh, uh, exit the podcast thinking that TMAO is a biomarker specific for for red meat so it's interesting
2: right yep.
0: Yeah, it's certainly added to a lot of discussion about folks advocating for reducing choline and carnitine as precursors. And then you look at how much TMA and TMAO is in fish, and it's like yeah. massive. Yeah. It's a big conundrum for the field of nutrition.
2: Yeah, I think metabolomics are interesting, whether they're causal and you know downstream on the metabolic pathway to chronic disease or more upstream and really just a marker of dietary intake. I think there's a lot to learn there. It's probably a bunch of both. Um, but yeah, the, uh, nutrition field and Lorraine Brennan, our new metabol or omics editor has a lot of work cut out for her because I think this field is probably only going to see even more action.
0: Sure. Definitely. So, Chris, what about you? What what paper are you going to tackle?
1: Well, there are a lot of
0: really interesting
1: uh, papers, as you as you noted, Kevin. And one of the papers actually came and was uh, very highly discussed was uh, actually not a full paper, but it was a letter to the editor, uh, and it was published in, in April of 2020. And it specifically uh, was uh, addressed the issue of whether uh, nutritional aspects of COVID nineteen infection that uh, might be in fact modifiable. Uh, so Dr. Zhang and colleagues uh, performed what, what we call an ecological study, right? So they essentially correlated uh, some important exposure variables with an outcome variables um, from two different data sets uh, without really, and they acknowledge this, not any individual patient data, uh, but just countrywide data in China. Uh, and essentially they compared selenium exposure uh, as measured by selenium concentration in the hair from an earlier uh, collected database, with survival rate um, from COVID nineteen infection um, in 17 cities outside of Hubei, uh, China, um, and um, indeed, in uh, there is this one city in the province of China called Enxi, which is has been known for for a while to have uh, diets that have been high in dietary selenium uh, and there have been even some case reports of selenium toxicity in this region Um, and of course that we know that there are areas of china where the soil is very low in selenium and selenium deficiency is commonly seen at least biochemically Um, and in a very i thought Eye-catching figure uh, in this letter to the editor. This uh, there was a very strong relationship between survival on one hand and hair selenium concentration on the other, with an R squared value of 0.72. So obviously, it 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 is more of a hypothesis-generating paper with respect to would uh, improving selenium status in people who are susceptible to COVID infection uh, be something that would be worthwhile doing. And I hope that if folks are doing clinical trials on that uh, topic, they'll uh, think of, of submitting their works to the AJCN because obviously this would be a potentially very impactful uh, intervention. Um, and again, I, I, I want to point out the deficiencies of ecological studies that we all know and that the authors themselves reflected on in the last paragraph of this letter letter to the editor, which in, in addition to the lack of patient-specific data, uh, they really didn't have much data on uh, underlying confounding variables that we know are important for survival after COVID infection, including uh, diabetes, obesity, uh, age, uh, access to medications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so as a, as a hypothesis-generating paper, I thought it was uh, really an interesting one, and it certainly caught the uh, eyes of uh, many people on uh, around the globe.
0: I think that'll be a surprise to some listeners. It's not zinc that people are targeting now. It's selenium. <laughs>
1: And obviously, there's a lot of interest in vitamin D uh, with respect to COVID, too. And I do know that there are trials uh, ongoing there. So we look forward to those results.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think there's going to be a lot of people uh, applying for PhD programs in nutrition specifically to look at this nutrition and and sort of viral immunity link, uh, which has been underfunded in the past. But I'll be curious to see if there's RFAs in the future for that. Excellent. Didi, do you have any other papers you want to give a specific shout out to? Are we going to do eggs?
2: <laughs> I mean, we could talk about eggs. So <laughs> uh, this was actually the number one um, altmetric score paper for AJCN for 2020, and I guess maybe it's no surprise. I mean, they've made the top list of nutrient articles, you know. I don't know, in many years, they've been on the cover of Time magazine, like everybody loves eggs, or at least the controversy that they Everyone
1: represent. I like to talk about eggs. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, but as a nutrition epidemiologist, I mean, I could journal club this article for hours. Um, but, you know, the big picture is what we have here is this large consortia of, you uh, mini cohorts in this pure study, so it's global. It represents number of uh, countries around the world, from you know developed to um, rural and urban, and all of the participants registered in these in these sites uh, filled out a food frequency questionnaire, and a number of other participant characteristics. And there was a follow up. The first questionnaire, I guess, the first enrollment began in two thousand three. So they do have, you know, over a decade, um, almost two now, of follow up um, for some of the participants under the belt, um, and it also included data from On Target and Transcend, which are two randomized trials that had kind of like mini questionnaires about diet at baseline, including eggs. Um, so these data collectively basically evaluated single baseline measure of egg intake with subsequent cardiovascular disease risk. And they looked at MI, which is heart attack, stroke, heart failure, and death. And this is an observational study. Nobody was randomized to consume the egg intake that they had. So this is self-reported. And obviously, people who eat more eggs than less are probably doing a lot of other things different and living a lot of other lifestyle factors differently. So these models, to the best that they were able, also adjusted for covariates like sex and education and urban versus rural smoking status, physical activity, and then also dietary factors that would be um, assumed to be correlated with eggs like red meat and bacon and dairy and carbs and all of that. So um, this model was, you know, adjusted for pretty much everything under the sun you can think of, although, you know, whether that's still up for residual confounding, of course, is still always a question in observational analyses. Um, They did a linear regression with these continuous biomarkers. So in addition to looking at cardiovascular events, they looked at lipids, triglycerides, and ApoA and ApoB. So what did they find? Um, Basically, they found that there was no association with blood lipids or triglycerides with egg intake. So people who ate more eggs compared to those who ate less, um, there was no difference in cholesterol levels cross-sectionally. Um, there was no association with long-term cardiovascular disease risks. So if you ate more eggs, you did not have a higher risk of CBD. And um, there was actually an inverse association with blood pressure. It was modest, um, but you know there was no elevation in blood pressure at those with a really high egg intake. So I think um, you know maybe this, is the last egg study we'll see for a while, but probably not. I'm sure there will be more. Um, It seems to be a cyclical, um, eggs are bad, eggs are good, like butter and bacon and all of those. So right now, I think it's safe to say the consensus is eggs are probably not harmful. So I, you know, I think that, you know, with every observational study, especially if you just have like a single measure of diet at baseline, there are some limitations. But um, there's no major red flags, and there's no um, there's no indication here that would say eggs are a causal factor for cardiovascular disease. So, I would say eat eat all the eggs you feel like. Um, <laughs> and you know, actually, the podcast is not
0: funded by the egg industry. <laughs> Just clarifying.
2: <laughs> I mean, eggs are. I think eggs are a really interesting food. They're, um, a great source of protein and nutrients and healthy fats, but they're also affordable. They're accessible. People can have them in their backyard right. with chickens. Right. I think globally, the availability of having access to eggs is, um, like shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, so you know, I, I get it, there people don't want to eat eggs or they're vegan or vegetarian, and, and that's fine. There's plenty of other ways to make up those nutrients. But for those who, who aren't opting for that, it doesn't look like the evidence is really stacked up against eggs being detrimental to health.
1: Yeah, certainly uh, the source of amino acids is really excellent for growing children. And many uh, studies have suggested that uh, for the prevention of malnutrition or even uh, treatment of malnutrition, egg, egg protein can be an
0: important component. Coming from the choline world, we we love eggs, but
2: <laughs> yeah, so okay, so how would you analyze, so they did this. they you, you try to isolate a nutrient in a food in a regression model, right? So you have these food frequency questionnaires which ask people what food they eat, and then you can derive that to estimate, okay, who eats how much choline. And if you wanted to you know include other components of eggs in your model to to see what choline's relationship is, you can try to do that, but um, and I think they, they did try to adjust for certain nutrients to see whether you know cholesterol or, or dietary cholesterol made a difference and things like that. Um, you know those I, I take those types of analyses with a grain of salt, but there were no interesting findings there. I mean, how could you make an egg that didn't have choline? So I, I yeah. the, the, the extension of it is is not like readily available to me, but I do see the um I do see the 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 motivation for wanting to ask that type of question.
0: Yeah. Well, I know, I know it's hard to follow up on eggs, Chris, but was there another paper that you wanted to chat about?
1: Yeah, there were, there were a couple uh, really interesting papers. One of the um, one that, that broke our top 10, I think it was number six or so on the top metrics uh, alt metrics view was an article entitled strengthening national nutrition research rationale and options for a new coordinated federal research effort and authority uh, this this was published uh, in July of 2020 uh, and was is, is really I think already um, proven to be a very influential paper as, as well we'll talk about um, the the paper um, was indeed written um, by a number of uh, both nutrition scientists as well as uh, Uh, current or former federal employees, including one at least one uh, U.S. senator and one former FDA uh, director. Um, So these authors really uh, make a very strong case for how the environment, if you will, of uh, nutrition research in our country uh, should and could be uh, rethought. Uh, Essentially, um, it starts with the supposition that we're all, I think, quite aware of, which is that there's a very strong relationship between uh, poor diet and physical activity patterns and the um, risk factors for chronic diseases, including obesity, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes, and I think that's, that's well-established, but it takes it really a step further and points out quite nicely that these same factors, poor diet and uh, lifestyle um, issues have an impact on our country writ large. So specifically, uh, they make the point that these uh, aspects of our uh, nutrition and food intake have an impact on uh, health disparities in our country. Uh, They have uh, an impact on healthcare costs, certainly. Um, Our US economic competition is adversely affected by our uh, uh, overwhelmingly poor nutritional status and poor dietary intake. Uh, even our military readiness and uh, efforts to sustainability are affected broadly by food, agriculture, and nutrition policy uh, in our country. Uh, some of the really interesting tidbits in this paper include things like that the U.S. government has more direct expenditures for the care of uh, patients with diabetes. Um, those, that cost exceeds the entire budget of the entire NIH, um, you know, it's $160 billion of direct medical costs from the U.S. government uh, to care for people with diabetes. Um, so uh, three out of four young Americans, for instance, don't qualify for U.S. military service because uh, often of obesity or other physical limitations. So there are really uh, some important facts that that are um, pointed out in this uh, influential white paper, if you will. Um uh, the uh, nih budget comes for comes under uh, great discussion uh, in this white paper uh, it, it's pointed out that despite the fact that um, a, a vast majority of the health outcomes in our country are somehow related to nutrition uh, and diet and lifestyle only about 5% of the total nih budget is dedicated to nutrition related research Uh, And that 5% is actually distributed uh, broadly within uh, 27 different institutes that make up the National Institutes of Health. So the obvious conclusion that the authors draw is that not only should more research dollars be uh, driven towards nutrition-related research, um, but it should be more uh, and better coordinated both across government agencies, um, but also within the NIH itself. It specifically broaches the idea of whether a new institute called the National Institute of Nutrition should be established. Uh, And obviously, that's something that the new uh, administration will uh, likely tackle. But already, we've seen an implication of this work because uh, just this week, uh, the Office of Nutrition Research has been announced to be moving out of NIDDK, one of the institutes of the NIH, and into the Office of the NIH Director. Um, So I think that this paper has really had uh, an impact on how nutrition research is considered uh, by NIH and by other governmental agencies. And uh, I would really uh, commend it uh, to all of our readers to and listeners uh, to look at again.
0: So would you call it the NIN or the NION on <laughs> How would you prefer? <laughs> well,
1: interestingly, I'm familiar with uh, people who work at the NIN called the, National, uh, the Indian National Institute of Nutrition, also N-I-N. So I think we'd have to mm. call it the U.S. NIN.
2: I mean, I grew up grunge in the Se- in Seattle in the 90s, so I'd probably go towards oh. NIN. Um, I think I had a Nine Inch Nails patch on my back. <laughs> you can cut that out of the podcast.
0: We can get them to the sponsor it. It's, <laughs> it's going to be a resurgence of uh, Nine Inch Nails on iTunes top list.
1: So another important factoid uh, that the authors point out is actually that uh, this is not just a plea for additional funds. Um, This is actually an economic argument that the return on investment in uh, NIH research is actually quite an important aspect of economic growth in our country. Uh, They estimate that for um, every $1 that was invested, say, in the Human Genome Project uh, was returned 180 times fold and economic uh, growth from uh, the private um, and governmental agencies.
0: Wow. Well, well, you heard it here, folks. Go bug your senators and congressmen and make sure that we get some funding.
2: Yeah, I so maybe only because I'm putting in a, a methods-related grant right now, but it's difficult, I, I feel like, m- Nutrition methods are at the bedrock of how successful the science itself will be. And mm. it's really difficult to shop around a grant for nutrition methods when it's not specifically tied to a disease or an outcome. And, you know, I don't know. I feel like my, my current set of aims is a little bit homeless. It doesn't have disease it's necessarily tied to, but I feel like it would be applicable to many different chronic diseases if if the method ended up working. So I I think maybe by dedicating funds specifically for nutrition, it'll give the science itself um, some much needed funding to look inward and, and really kind of ask like, okay, well, what are the methods we're even, what are the tools that we can even invest in before we start answering like the big public health questions or at the same time as we're we're doing those big questions. Um, Because methods I think are incredibly important and often um,
1: overlooked. And I think the NIH agrees with that, I think, Didi, right? I mean, in terms of their uh, viewpoint for uh, a blueprint for nutrition research in the coming decades, I think they specifically address the the shortcomings of some of the uh, tried and true tools that uh, the field has relied on.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see. I think some specific avenues in that area would be nice to see.
0: Hope for twenty twenty one and beyond. Yeah, it's a good note to end on, right? Well, before we sign off, I think uh, we definitely have to acknowledge all the people who made the publications at AGCM possible, uh, including. Our publisher, OUP, uh, American Society for Nutrition, and all of our peer reviewers, uh, you all were stepped up in 2020 and really helped us publish some uh, some really great work here. And really thankful for everyone who partook in making AJC and the success that it was in 2020.
2: Yeah. And Kevin, you in particular started your role this past year and launched this podcast fearlessly. And I think it's gone really well. Um, and, you know, ASN was behind that every step of the way, along with their, um, supporters and call for, <clears throat> call for donations, given the fact that it was in honor of the past editor in chief, um, a named position for Denny Bear. So, um, I think that probably deserves a shout out you as well, um, for doing this podcast and all the other social media. And in media. addition to the
1: podcast, a real impressive, uh, um, performance and, and, uh, presence on social media with, uh, over 2000, uh, Twitter followers, uh, in a quite short period of time. So. <laughs> Congratulations, yeah. Kevin. Exactly. <laughs> Thank
2: yeah, you so I much. Mean, I can't imagine Chris, if you were at the helm of the Twitter handle, <laughs> like Celtic Twin, like, like retweet. <laughs> um, and me neither. I just, I don't, I don't get along with it. Uh, so you do it very well and uh,
0: cool. Well, I look forward to the pay raise I'll inevitably get in 2021. Thanks so much, guys.
2: Ever optimistic.
1: We'll double, we'll double what you get. We'll double it, I'm sure.
0: What is two times zero? No, <laughs> 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 Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining us and I look forward to the 2021 year in review. Maybe we'll have you back on before the end, but no promises.
2: <sighs>
1: Thanks
0: a lot, Kevin. Thanks,
1: Didi.
2: Yeah, and ASN or ASN is virtual again. So
1: we'll see you there. We'll have to yeah, uh, prepare those abstracts.